Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this episode, again, is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen. Long time no see. I know. I feel like we were just on recording yesterday. Uh, we're, we're doing back-to-back episodes today. Natalie, we reached the finish line, I'm a, and I'm a, I'm a range of emotions. I'm excited. I'm tired. I'm a little bit hungry, and... <laughs> I don't get any money toward my student loans. So there's just a whole whole whirlwind going on inside my head. That's right. That's right. As uh, listeners likely know, uh, but if, if you've been kind of uh, under a rock or, or something for the last few days, it is the last day of the term. And we had two major opinions come out um, in cases involving LGBTQ rights and Biden's student uh, loan forgiveness plan, uh, which I think, as, as you can already tell from what Stephen said, you, you know how it went. Um, there were actually three cases, but there were two that were grouped under Biden's student loan debt. And we're going to talk about all those today. Yeah, it was a, it was a couple of really interesting opinions today, and we're going to get into those. But let's just start with a big one, uh, 303 Creative versus Alenis. And the Supreme Court ruled on Friday morning that a Christian website designer in Colorado can refuse service for same-sex weddings, finding that her free speech rights would be violated if she were exposed to legal liability under Colorado's anti-discrimination law. We have a guest on the show today to help us talk through this one. Christopher Jackson is a partner at Holland and Hart, formerly an assistant attorney general at the Colorado Department of Law. He's been tracking this case, and he actually joined us back in December when this case was argued. He talked us through the oral arguments, and he's back on the show. Welcome back, Chris. It's great to have your return. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So this case involved a, a pretty interesting set of facts. Um, there's this woman in Colorado, a website designer, Lori Smith, and she doesn't actually create websites yet, but she plans to, and she is religious. He, she has certain beliefs about um, marriage between a man and a woman, and so basically what she did was preemptively sue, saying that you know, Colorado's anti-discrimination law would penalize her if say, a same-sex couple came to her asking for a website design, and she didn't want to tailor her very specific creative message towards something that she doesn't believe in. And when we talked to you last time following oral arguments, it seemed like a majority of the court's conservative justices were supportive of that idea and uh, her her protection of free speech. Um, That's ultimately what we got today in the 6-3 opinion by Justice Gorsuch. What were your big takeaways from the majority here? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It was uh, 100% of the majority, so a 6-3 vote um, in favor of the petitioner, 303 Creative. Um, And I guess a few takeaways from here. Uh, So one is that uh, the big question in this case was about whether the, the kind of business that 303 Creative wanted to engage in, whether that was conduct or speech. And if it's conduct, it doesn't have First Amendment protections. Of course, if it's speech, then it does. And you have to go and and figure out if it it passes strict scrutiny. Uh, In this case, uh, the majority opinion written by Justice Gorsuch said uh, pretty breezily and pretty quickly, yes, this is speech. Of course it is. And more than that, it is her speech. It is not the the gay couple who might have been asking her to to create these wedding websites. Um, And I think my takeaway from it is, it doesn't offer a ton of guidance, at least formally speaking, about where the court is going and how it's going to draw the line between free speech on the one hand and conduct on the other. Um, there are some indications that the court reads free speech very broadly, 
But then at the same time, Justice Gorsuch's opinion was um, reliant on large part on the particular facts in the case and the stipulations that the parties had agreed to. And so I think one big takeaway is it's still very likely the U.S. Supreme Court is going to continue to read uh, First Amendment protections very broadly. But this case doesn't seem to offer a lot of specifics about how the court is going to draw those lines. I wanted to ask a, a quick follow up um, just about Justice Gorsuch's reasoning. He relies a lot on on past precedents in, in certain cases like I think like New Jersey's public public accommodation law and, you know, a case of, um, you know, uh, LGBT community not being involved in a Boston parade and some of that precedent that he sort of relied on. And then this idea of states compelling speech. And, you know, I, I think his reasoning said something along the lines of, well, you know, a state couldn't compel a, a, a Muslim filmmaker to create a Zionist film. And, I guess I, as I was reading that, I was just wondering how much that lined up with this particular set of facts in this case. I mean, did, did the facts of this case line up with his reasoning? Yeah, I, I think that was one of the big questions, obviously, between the majority and the dissent. Um, the majority opinion focused a lot on the stipulations that the parties had agreed to, where they, they stipulated that, that this was expressive conduct uh, of some kind, that it would be tailored to the particular couple, and that it was something that 303 Creative and Lori Smith would be working on, you know, for each couple, for each wedding. Um, but you know, it, it, it's it's really hard to draw these lines. Uh, there are extreme examples that uh, both sides can point to if you adopt one rule or the other. And you know, my view or my takeaway, at least, is that uh, these lines they're really hard. There's no principled way really to say this is definitely speech and this is definitely conduct. And my frustration with the majority opinion, at least in part, is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of engagement with that question that we know in this case, uh, according to the Supreme Court, this was expressive conduct. But I don't know how much guidance the majority is really giving us going forward about, you know, we know we know wedding website designers now are covered by the First Amendment. But what if it's an off the shelf wedding designer? What if it's floral arrangements? What if it's allowing people to use a venue or renting chairs and tables for a wedding? We really don't have a good way, I think, of assessing where uh, where we move from speech over to conduct. So there was 70 pages worth of opinions delivered um, in this case today. Um, as you kind of mentioned, uh, the, the majority opinion was a, a bit breezy, and, and half of those 70 pages actually came from a dissent written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, she read it from the bench and called it, quote, a sad day in American constitutional law and the lives of LGBT people. Obviously, she was not mincing words there. Can you talk us through a, a bit of the main thrust of her dissent? Right. Yeah. Th th a couple of good points. And I, I just want to emphasize that um, Justice Sotomayor did read her dissent from the bench, um, which I believe she did yesterday as well with the affirmative action, the two cases that were consolidated. Um, before that, though, I think it had been several years uh, since a member of the court had read a dissent from the bench. Uh, so it's relatively unusual and is meant to signal uh, strenuous or substantial disagreement with the majority opinion. So that, that I think, is a really important point. And I think Justice, Justice Sotomayor made a, a couple of really big points. So one, as you said, is that, you know, in her, in her view, this is a really terrible day for the LGBTQ community um, and that it, 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 it sanctions or permits forms of discrimination that I think uh, a lot of people thought for a long time uh, were straightforwardly not permissible under state law. So that was one big point. Uh, the other big one, I think, uh, about... That's, that's, I guess, more on the legal issues is that Sotomayor argued 
um, that this case, it didn't involve speech, that we don't have to go down the line of this is speech and therefore it's subject to strict scrutiny and do we have a compelling interest that the law is narrowly tailored uh, to further. In her view, this is, uh, it's commercial conduct. And historically, uh, the First Amendment has never protected the act of discrimination. Uh, and so in, it, she would resolve the, the case, I think, on those grounds much more uh, quickly, much more easily than the majority would have. Yeah, Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice Sotomayor kind of jousted in their opinions. Uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch spent a lot of his majority kind of swatting away dissenting arguments, even saying at one point that it was difficult to read the dissent and conclude we were looking at the same case. So I feel like there was a lot of back and forth between those two and and the ways that they approached this one. Yeah, I think that's right. And the majority opinions seem to go back and forth between you know saying this is straightforwardly uh, involves speech and therefore is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, but then when it came to responding to some of the points from the dissent, I think the majority's move was was a, in a lot of ways to focus on the stipulations in the case in particular, uh, you know, which of course is harder for those of us who want to know what the law looks like going forward against, against a bunch of different cases. Uh, if the court and the majority opinion is relying primarily on stipulations in this particular case, it doesn't give us a lot of guidance. And so I think there are a lot of open questions that the majority doesn't answer about just how far this ruling is going to go. Uh, my prediction is that, you know, again, as I said, uh, that the majority of the court is going to continue to read the First Amendment very broadly. Uh, but that my prediction comes much more from other other things that the court has other other decisions that the court has issued rather than the particular language in the majority opinion in this case. Along the lines of how far this this opinion will have an impact, um, obviously, you know, Colorado's public accommodation law and its Anti-Discrimination Act were at the heart of this case. How much teeth remains of those laws after today? Very much an open question. Uh, formally speaking, the Supreme Court has said that anti-discrimination laws and public accommodations laws uh, are consistent with the Constitution as long as they regulate uh, conduct and, and commercial conduct rather than speech. Of course, the big question is what what qualifies as speech that, that therefore gets First Amendment protection? And that that I think is a very open question. It certainly isn't clear to me when uh, when conduct falls or like moves over into the category of speech. And, and as I said before, there are lots of different examples and counterexamples that parties and commentators have made in connection with this case for months. And I don't think anyone's come up with a single consistent rule to try to draw that distinction. And I, I also don't think the majority opinion gives us a lot of guidance about where the court's going to do it in the future. So, Chris, we'll get you out of here on this one. Um you know, much is going to be written and covered in this case today. And, you know, depending on your political persuasion, people are going to see this as a, a win for free speech or, on the other hand, you know, discrimination against a group that has fought long and hard for equal rights in this country. Um, you know, it's a difficult one to talk about. And so what do you think that some of those conversations are going to kind of look like today? Yeah, I mean, there's, I guess, I guess maybe, maybe here's one way to try to talk about it is that there's the formal legal question about when conduct moves into speech and therefore is protected by the First Amendment, even if, if it discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation. And then there's the other issue that I think is lurking in the background in all of this, and then is expressly talked about uh, by Justice Sotomayor in her dissent, is you know this expressive feature of the law that 
regardless of the practical impacts that a public accommodations law has, which is still very important. There's also just the fact that, you know, for example, the state of Colorado has said it is wrong to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and the state should do what it can to prevent it. And I think what a lot of people are worried about, for those who are critical of the majority opinion, is that this opinion can be seen as sanctioning that kind of discrimination. Again, apart from the specific practical effects it might have, there's an expressive feature of the law. And the worry um, for those who are critical of this decision would be that it's it's expressing the wrong kind of values. Of course, the flip side, what the majority would say is it's expressing the right kind of values because uh, free speech is important and you're supposed to be allowed to talk about things even when they're very unpopular, uh, that that's how the marketplace of ideas is able to function properly and that you've got to win your arguments on the merits and not just silence the other side from saying something that you disagree with. Well, Chris, um, we thank you again so much for taking the time to walk us through this one. Um, it was great talking to you earlier about the oral arguments, and then thank you for coming back and talk about the opinion. Surely there is much to watch in this case as litigation will will surely follow, and, and all those different hypothetical ser- scenarios could work their way up to the court again. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That was a great conversation with Chris. Um, as I mentioned up top, though, that was just one of um, basically two blockbuster sets of, of decisions that came down. Um, in the very last decision of the term, the justices also blocked Biden's plans to forgive more than $400 billion in federal loans held by millions of Americans. Stephen, as we've talked about on this podcast time and time again, this was a highly, highly watched case. Um, for those of you who might need a reminder, in August, the Secretary of Education had announced plans to absolve uh, between 10000 to 20000 basically, worth of student loans for various debt holders. Kind of depends on what type of debt you, you had and where you kind of fell. The administration, when it announced this plan, had invoked what is known as the HEROES Act from 2003 as giving them the authority to, quote, waive or modify, unquote. That That's a very uh, particular phrase that we... We need to keep in mind, waive or modify uh, federal student loan requirements in times of a national emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic. The justices in a 6-3 decision on Friday, though, with majority opinion penned by the chief justice, said that the authority does not go as far as allowing the secretary to basically rewrite the statute to cancel the debt. Quote, the modifications challenged here create a novel and fundamentally different loan forgiveness program. He further added that what the government and the dissenting justices were asking for would essentially give the Secretary of Education unlimited power to rewrite the Education Act and wrongfully vest away the power of the purse from Congress. Yeah, this was a huge case, Natalie, with so much money on the line and so many people impacted. I mean, a lot of people have student loans and we're closely watching this one. Now, there was two cases here, right? There was there was students who had sued saying that um, they didn't get the full relief. And so they were suing basically that they were suffered damage because of that. And then in the other case, you had a group of states, um, Missouri, Nebraska, who had sued um, basically on the part of um, state student loan service providers who were going to lose money from from these debts being canceled. Uh, What happened in both of those cases then today? That's right. Um, So the case involving the two individuals, um, that one was decided in a unanimous opinion delivered by Justice Alito. um, And the court said they don't have standing to sue, that they couldn't establish injury that could be kind of traced directly enough to the plan to forgive debt. 
And then in the other case, the one, you know, the the, the one I've been talking about, Biden v. Nebraska, um, which was brought by six states, uh, the justices found that at least one of the states, Missouri, had shown enough standing that the debt plan would uh, financially impact its nonprofit loan servicer. Yeah, there was an oral arguments in this case. There was a real question about whether these parties had standing to sue. And so I it seems like a, a lot of the opinion was focused on whether they did have standing or not. Ultimately, the states did. And um, and so Biden's debt plan is canceled under that case. Now, there were, you said it was six to three. So what did the dissent say here? That's right. There was a dissent penned by Justice Kagan and joined by Sotomayor and Jackson. Um, before I get into that dissent, though, I actually want to highlight Chief Justice Roberts ending his opinion kind of with a nod to the dissent. Um, and also, you know, as we've seen him time and time again, it's really interesting because this was like the last opinion of the term. And, and, you know, time and time and again, we've seen him trying to bolster the court's image as nonpartisan and kind of protect that. And I think he kind of tipped his hat to the critiques the court has been getting of late and frankly, to what seems to be a growing criticism that there's a political divide on the court. And he said, quote, it has become a disturbing feature of some re- recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary, unquote. But he explicitly then said that reasonable minds get to disagree and that the majority does not mistake the dissent's uh, disagreement for disparagement. So like, he's trying to kind of like say, like, look, they disagree with us. You know, but it, it's it's OK. This is not to be taken as like some sort of like, uh, you know, major political divide between us and that the public should not be misled either. Um, he said, quote, any such mis- misperception would be harmful to the institution and in our country, end quote. Um, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if the justice understands what some of the people's critiques of the court are, but sure, I, I take his point. I do, but I also want to kind of note that the dissent uh, opens with the line, quote, in every respect, the court today exceeds its proper limited role in our nation's government. So I'm not sure the dissenting (laughs) justices agree with the chief justice. So uh, going further into uh, the dissent, uh, they argued that the court shouldn't have decided this at all um, because the states shouldn't have been found to have standing, that they have no personal stake in the loan forgiveness program. Uh, and, and I have to say, like, it was a, a fairly scathing dissent, um, you know, quote, in, in giving these states a form in adjudicating their complaint, the court forgets its proper role. The court acts as though it is an arbiter of political and policy disputes rather than of cases and controversies, end quote. Further on the merits, the dissenting justices also argued that the HEROES Act does empower the secretary to act as he did to provide emergency relief. They said the HEROES Act was designed to deal with national emergencies, and the majority is kind of picking apart the statute in an attempt to escape the meaning of the whole act, and that the court's wrongfully taking away power from the legislator and the executive branch. Well, some strong wording on both sides there, but... um you know, ultimately, we should talk about the impact of this one. What does this mean for student debt holders? Well, there had been a pause on payments since the pandemic started. That was started by the Trump administration and extended by the Biden administration, um, especially after courts paused the debt forgiveness plan as it was kind of working its way through the through the litigation. Um, but in the latest debt ceiling deal, the administration did agree to restart collection on student loan debt. 
So come this fall, folks are going to have to start repaying. And um, a lot of that, you know, financial ease that many might have been expecting with when this plan was announced, um, you know, it's off the table now. Yeah, this was a very ambitious plan put forward by the Biden administration and um, ultimately kind of reached the end of the line here, it looks like. But speaking of reaching the end of the line, I think um, that's a wrap on the term that's for a us, wrap. at least. Well, sort of. <laughs> uh, we do want to note that, um, you know, we've been covering all the opinions and uh, next week we are actually going to be back for one last episode, we are joining uh, along with our uh, our colleagues over on uh, our sister podcast, Pro Se. We're going to have a big group discussion about some of the big takeaways from the Supreme Court term. I think everybody can look for that in their feeds. It should be on both feeds, Pro Se and the term next week. So we're excited for that um, as we prep for the 4th of July holiday here. Uh, we'll also be kind of thinking about some of these decisions that came down trying to put a good show together. And um, but then we're going to look forward to next term. And there, along with opinions today, there was also some orders. Natalie, you were tracked a couple of those today. Yeah, as is kind of tradition for the court on the last day of the term, um, there, there were several more cert grants. Um, and look, it's it's shaping up to be another blockbuster term. Uh, the, today, there was a major Title VII discrimination case, uh, a case that questions the SEC's administrative process, and a gun rights case added to the docket. So, you know, a lot, a lot more to be unpacked, uh, you know, in the, in the coming months. There's never a, a dull moment with the Supreme Court, as we have found out this whole term. Natalie, it has been Truly uh, an honor and a pleasure talking about it with you. We 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 were down a, a co-host. We lost our co-host in the middle of the season. And uh, Jimmy Hoover was, of course, great and uh, wonderful on the show. And, and hopefully we we picked up the mantle. I know you did, but it, it's been very you fun too, talking about Steven this. You too, Stephen and Amber. You guys have carried us through, honestly. Well, it, it's been a lot of fun and um, always interesting. And thank you so much for listening to us. Thanks, Stephen. And yes, thank you to our listeners. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to give special thanks to our guests this episode, Chris Jackson, and to reporters John Hill and Vin Guerreri, who both contributed with reporting to this episode. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term.